Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is February the 10th, 2023, a Friday. Uh, earlier this week, Joe Biden gave his State of the Union address, and the reviews are uniform. He's gone, according to CNN, full populist, whatever that means. Uh, everybody seems to be on the same page, left and right, populist and anti-populist. Uh, in the Washington Post, uh, there's an op-ed about how the Republicans must stop Biden from stealing their populist thunder, um, CNBC talks about Biden uh, laying out his populist 2024 themes uh, and the progressive, uh, the progressive uh, publication Mother Jones talks about Biden's populist barn burner. We've talked about populism a lot on this show, mostly suggesting it isn't a great thing. We had last year Daniel Drash on the show. Uh, we talked about whether or not populism had won. Uh, and uh, in Drash's language, uh, we discussed the war on liberal democracy, which populism was pursuing in his mind. Uh, we talked with Catherine Fieschi a couple of years ago. She has a term called populocracy, the tyranny of authenticity and the rise of populism. It's interesting that she connects the notion of authenticity or the cult of authenticity with the rise of populism. Yesterday, we did a show about the influencer industry and the quest for authenticity in social media. Maybe it's no surprise that populism seems to do very well in our social media age. Uh, not everyone, though, is critical of populism, at least people who have appeared on our show. Thomas Frank, one of America's, uh, I think, most incisive and original writers on politics and culture, uh, came on the show a couple of years ago to defend populism. Uh, he had a book out, The People Know, which suggests that populism isn't such a bad thing. The real question, of course, is what exactly populism is. It seems to exist in the eye of the beholder, often it simply becomes a word which is used to either insult or defend one's own political ideas, which is why I was particularly intrigued um, that this week, along with Biden's um, a State of the Union address, uh, uh, Boccioni University professor Massimo Morelli gave a major keynote at the Central European University on populism. Given its consequences, can populism be long-lasting? Um, Massimo is an authority on political economy, and I think in some ways a critic. And I'm thrilled that uh, Professor Morelli is joining us. Uh, Massimo, um, before we start, your analysis, perhaps you might try to define what at least you mean by populism. Yes, thanks a lot for having me on the show. What I mean by populism is a bit different from what the general accepted definition in political science is. Uh, 
in the causes and in, in an essential component. But let me therefore start with what is the most accepted definition of populism in political science. Typically, the most accepted definition in political science is that a populist intended as a, pop, as a politician who uses a populist strategy, a populist is someone who uses a rhetoric. So you already have in the definition that it's commonly used, a, uh, already the focus on communication, right? So a rhetoric that is uh, uh, defining the interest and, and claiming to defend the interest of the pure people against the corrupt elite. And uh, so this first part of the component of first component is in a sense the, the typical communication rhetoric. Okay. And so on this uh, more or less accepted component of the of the definition of populism that everybody agrees, it is easy to see how even someone who is typically not at all associated with populism, like Biden was not, uh, when it comes to just communication strategy, it is perfectly possible and, and perhaps even rational to adopt a type of language that is, uh, or a type of, of strategy that is becoming more uh, accepted or more popular or more effective given the prevalence of social media, given the uh, uh, the, the sort of taste for simple communication that exists uh, in our uh, uh, times. So that first component is kind of non-controversial. Non, uh, Everybody accepts it. The second component, though, is present in some, but not, not in others, definitions of populism, and it's the one that I want to insist uh, the most on. That is... Uh, Typically, a populist strategy includes what I call a commitment to protect. Now, this commitment to protect can go anywhere from a simple policy commitment. Think about the citizenship income uh, or, in any case, very simple bonus or other, other you know, microeconomic type of promises which in a sense has been common to right and left, has been common to Latin America and Northern Europe and, 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 uh, and somewhat uh, even non-populist parties, but it has been more common across populists. But, this, but it ranges all the way to identity protection commitments, right? So, so uh, in a sense, uh, America first, protectionism, nationalism of various forms, and even promises to protect the people from the biases of the, of the traditional media, the, the, the bureaucracy, institutions, and international organizations, all these uh, promises are more, of, are more related to identity politics more than a promise to, uh, to redistribute. And in fact, uh, this commitment to protect is, has been changing over time, and people were not talking about populism that much when someone, some politician in whatever country, uh, especially on the left side, on the left-hand side, would promise things that were related to the distribution. What is common these days is that, is that even 
the commitment to protect offered by some left-wing politicians around the world are not necessarily redistribution promises, but uh, something much more simple, much simpler to understand. Uh, are you suggesting... Um... Are you suggesting that any kind of cultural message, Masima, any kind of political cultural message is populist and that no, any what kind I'm... of economic message isn't? So let me try to... I, I, I thought about this question while thinking about uh, how to explain this point, this crucial point in, in this interview. So what I have in mind is, first of all, a strategic skeleton of the argument, namely the commitment to protect is something that is particularly effective whenever the, the audience, the voters, uh, have low trust in traditional representative democratic agents. So when the trust is particularly low, such that the experience voters had in the past in terms of corruption or in terms of not getting solutions to their problems, etc., is sufficiently high such that they want uh, uh, to see something tangible in three dimensions. So the, the skeleton has this, the following three dimensions. Uh, commitment policy has to be easily monitorable, easy to communicate, and so this is common to right and left, it's common to, to different pieces of populism. And the third is that this type of promises have to uh, uh, kind of serve short-term purposes and blaming the elites for being against them just because of the long-term consequences. So, so when someone tries to argue that a typical populist commitment uh, is perhaps useful in the short run but is going to screw us over in the long run, the rhetoric that comes to play by the populist is, well, these are concerns that, they, that the elite raises against this type of policy simply because they are representing interest groups that, that, that do not want this policy. This is typically for free trade and other... And other so this is really about trust, and, and I am always intrigued why Italy is more populist than any other country in Western Europe. You teach in Italy, you're from Italy, you've got your... Uh, you PhD, a doctorate at Harvard, so you're familiar with the United States too. There is, of course, I guess if if it's the right language, a, a pinup populist, uh, according to the CNN, uh, a charmer who is repackaging uh, it, Italy's far right. Um, Georgia Maloney is your prime minister. Many see her in a in a in a in a curious, odd way as an inheritor of Mussolini. What is it? Um, what is it, uh, Massimo, about Italy that makes it such fertile ground for populism, historically, from Mussolini to uh, Maloney? Oh, uh, I would be careful at drawing that parallel, but I can use, to answer your question, uh, a distinction that, is, that was made um, uh, two days ago at the conference at the Israeli Economic Association and International Economic Association, uh, um, prompted by the, the fear of illiberal reforms by the Netanyahu's government, elimination of judiciary 
independence and media freedom. In this type of important uh, uh, meetings, uh, Danny Roderick, from, uh, who is the president of the International Economic Association and is an important professor at the Kennedy School of Government, so Danny Roderick uh, 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 represented uh, an important distinction that he likes to make between macroeconomic populism and authoritarian populism, which I would also call illiberal populism. These are two different uh, forms uh, and, re and related to my definition of populism, they correspond to two different types of commitment strategies. So the, the macroeconomic populism that also Don Bush and Edwards for, the, for Latin America described before like that, uh, relates to more like the, the populist trying to obtain office by giving, by promising the people what they want in terms of the economic policies, right? So, so in a sense, the five-star movement is the example in Italy of short-term promises that maybe are not tenable in the long run that would have mostly focused on people wanting something immediately to resolve their uh, Massimo, let me ask you, maybe this is a bit of a, I mean, you, you've given a lot of thought to this. Maybe this is a bit of a dim-witted question, but it seems to me that any smart politician, by definition, would be a populist. They want to get inside no. the hearts, the minds, maybe the pants of their voters. Isn't, by definition, no. politics populist, isn't? No. I mean, if, you, if you're not a populist, then you're doing something wrong. No, if you're no, not, not at all, because the politics has has been for many years in Italy itself. Given that you asked about Italy, from 1948, uh, certainly for the for the first few decades, a, uh, a, 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 a game even uh, for people who will talk about the future. So, so in fact, regardless of the ideological views. Uh, there are wonderful uh, political discussions before elections in the first uh, few decades of the Italian Republic after fascism, in which the discussions were all about the visions of the future, were all about the importance of solidarity versus meritocracy, uh, the, the importance of joining the European Union because of the importance of, of, of bringing the risk of war and the value of cooperation the risk of war down and the value of cooperation up. So the discussions were pretty uh, broad-ranging and long-term looking, whereas the, 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 the new politics of populism is short-term oriented, and in fact the, the nationalism component of populism is very short-term oriented in particular, given that we face global challenges like climate change, like uh, geopolitical challenges, uh, and, and of course, COVID was just one example, where uh, trying to face those global challenges with a, with a short-term nationalistic response is, is, is a paradox, is something that is, is completely wrong, right? But on the other well, hand- it's, it's wrong in your mind, not everyone yes. would agree. No, no, is the alternative then, in, in the way you're presenting it, is the alternative to populism technocracy? Are those the two poles we seem to ricochet between in contemporary political democracies, whether it's Italy or the United States or Great Britain or Japan? No, it has been portrayed that way and, in, in, and at some level uh, in Italy, given that you made this example, you can see Draghi versus Meloni and you can say, uh, is that the, is that the um, uh, 
the contrast that we should focus on when Draghi with a lot of expertise. Yeah, Mario Draghi so. is, a, is the classic technocrat and of course exactly. Maloney seems the classic populist. Yeah, yeah but, 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 but I, I wish to answer the, the Meloni question first and then come back to this. The Meloni, in a sense, is trying to go away from populism, actually. So what, uh, ah. not only, not only it, it is not true that all, all politicians are, are populist or have to be populist if they want to win. But in fact, she's trying to go away for, from it because Italy is a country where, yes, you had many uh, experiences and incarnations of populism, but all those that you had so far from the five-star movement on the left uh, or, or center-left or whatever, to Salvini, uh, League, League, et cetera, on the right. These were being, uh, being incarnation of short-term promises that happened to fail because it was difficult to sustain commitments that are not feasible from the point of view of fiscal sustainability. She took a different route. She took a more directional type of commitment that is closer to the original ideology. And her positions on fighting crime are very close to any other right-wing uh, uh, government in, in, in Europe. And she didn't have to make many short-term promises. In fact, she has been criticized just for one promise, short-term promise, which was one to reduce the taxes on gas. And of course, she couldn't do it because of the gas crisis. And, 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 you know, and, and, and that's the only thing that she did she promised and didn't, didn't do, but she's not, she's not criticized for, for those things because her commitments were more ideological type. So that type of commitment is on the one hand, much less uh, populist in the sense of macroeconomic populism of, 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 uh, of Roderick, but on the other hand, a little bit more dangerous because even though she's not using the populist strategy now that she's in office anymore, but in terms of the types of reforms that she wants to convince the Italian people to do or to support, uh, she's going more in the direction of illiberal reforms. So we are worried that it's not the populism part that worries, but the fact that she uh, might be in favor uh, of um, a type of presidentialism uh, that I don't think is particularly good for democracy. So presidentialism is fine if uh, you have it, for example, with the runoff system, like, uh, like in the case of France, because at the end of the day, the president of France in the second, uh, in the second uh, round of election has to, be, has to receive the support of the absolute majority of the electorate. Whereas a presidentialism reform where the plurality of, of votes, that is, it's enough to have more votes than, than another candidate, but if you have three or five or six candidates, you may be elected president of Italy in her view of what the presidentialism reform should be, even with 30% of the votes. And that's yeah, it's a, a, it's a very interesting. So Massimo, what's the relationship between populism and the market? And particularly in the context of the Liz Truss story, she, of course, is or was a populist, it seems to me anyway, and she was brought down by the international financial markets. What does the trust story tell us about the relationship between populism and the global markets, capitalism and what some people call neoliberalism, although we seem to be increasingly living in a post-neoliberal age? 
the connection that I keep drawing is still with short-term commitments. And the best example is not really a least trust in that sense, even though it was another example of this, uh, because that was the fastest example of failure in that dimension. But perhaps a better, a better example of this would be Erdogan, because Erdogan yeah. has, has even claimed that he has a, a, a fantastic uh, economic theory behind this, that uh, you face inflation by lowering interest rate instead of hiring, uh, raising interest rate. And nobody uh, thinks that he, that he really believes in that theory, but in the short run, that is what would have allowed him uh, in, uh, to create space for his policies that would have allowed re-election in the next round. So the idea of this type of leaders is, okay, let's, let's use... Uh, economic policies that don't make much sense, but in the short run can pay off in terms of votes. And then once I'm elected, well, I'll try to weaken the, the judiciary and the bureaucracy and the media, uh, you know, the agencies of restraint that as Roddick would define them in a way that I, I can get, I can sort of, uh, you know, compensate for the potential long run cost of this strange short-term policies I'm making now by by reinforcing, in any case, my ability to remain in office. Yeah, it's interesting that you, the, the Orban example, uh, uh, the, sorry, the Erdogan example is very interesting. Perhaps the European pin-up boy, at least, for populism is Viktor Orban. He he met Vladimir uh, Zelensky uh, uh, today, I think. Um, are Orban and Zelensky, are they both in their own odd ways populists from the left and the right? And does that suggest that you can't really make any political generalizations about populism, that it's not necessarily a left or a right-wing phenomenon? Now, think, think about this as a lens, this, this populism uh, typology and, and categorization that they made it that I made, that I'm making through my works is, is actually useful uh, uh, to uh, describe uh, things in, in actually with, with quite a, 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 a good level of heuristics. So think about Orban and Zelensky. So Orban. So Orban started out, remember, Hungary at a decent level of democracy according to the Economist Intelligence Unit uh, um, uh, uh, score uh, before before Orban, so you're starting with a with a good democracy, and what you do in order to get office, you do the macroeconomic populism, uh, promising things that the the people care about. So what do you do? You offer, for example, tax breaks for for families that that go for the third and and fourth child, and 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 so policies of this kind. But as soon as you get office, then you start the you start the illiberal reform type uh, of policies, where you try to weaken the judiciary, you weaken media media freedom, and to weaken the bureaucracy that uh, that would create obstacles to your policies. And at that point, start the, uh, the second phase where the agenda of the leader may well be an agenda that is related to uh, corruption and closeness to the, to the Russian oligarchs or, or, or whatever uh, comes to his mind, because once you, you have weakened the, the, the agencies of restraint, then the freedom to move is, is, uh, is, 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 is moved on. So that's the, that second phase, the illiberal reform phase, is something that you typically would not expect 
on the left. And so that is also something that, that, that you can see. Sometimes, you, sometimes it happens in some Latin American experiences, but most of the time, the, the, the good and the bad of populism stops at the short-term policies in the sense that it's considered good in the, in the short run and, it, and it's evaluated as bad after 10 years. So that's the difference. The Zelensky is a different story because at the communication level, uh, he is trying to uh, keep the, the, uh, the attention and, and his experience as a communicator is very important, keeping the whole people of Ukraine together on this uh, uh, important defense of, of his country, but also, also in, important uh, cohesion with the, with the European Union. And, uh, and so it's a purely communicative uh, style. I do not know, I do not have enough information about uh, uh, what uh, uh, policies uh, uh, he would be characterized uh, for in terms of management of the state on a day-by-day -day basis. But it's interesting that he actually fired a number of corrupt ministers uh, uh, as uh, maybe three weeks ago. And so yeah. I, 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 I don't know that, uh, that he wants or he would ever want to get into a sort of second phase Orban style. So in that um, sense, it's a bit different. Uh, Massimo, um, as, as I said, I mean, obviously, Mussolini is Italian and there's a strong tradition of authoritarian populism, I guess, in Italy. We did a show a couple of years ago with Ruth Ben-Ghiat, who uh, has a popular book out, Strongman Mussolini to the Present, in which she associates populism and uh, the, the, the ideal of male strength. She, she, she makes genders, I think, in many ways central to populism and authoritarianism. In terms of your reading, I mean, obviously, Liz Truss and um, Georgia Meloni, they're both uh, female. Is there a, a gendered quality to this? Do you have any um, analysis or um, both men and women both more or less likely to not only become populist politicians, but be sympathetic to populist messages and parties? So, as I said, in my uh, reading, the commitments that a populist makes are related in part to what voters want and in part to agenda, right? So, so the, the, the statement of Giorgio Meloni have been during the campaign, I'm a Christian, I'm a woman, I'm a mother. No? So these this, uh, uh, three components, one is kind of more traditional of identity politics, trying to uh, uh, have to, together, so to speak, the, the unified people of Christians in Italy. And the second two are obviously playing on the gender. Playing on the gender because clearly, you know, beside the fact that half of the voters are women, the, 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 new, the new times are, are obviously different from Mussolini's time. So at this, at this juncture, those two uh, elements are uh, quite uh, important. But they do play uh, in terms more on the, on the uh, voters that typically would not uh, vote for a populist. That's why now that she's in office, she's trying to detach herself from the from at least uh, part of the of the definition of populism. Interestingly enough, 
the political science definition of populism would still qualify 100% Fratelli d'Italia, the party of, of Meloni, as, as fully populist. But the, the lead, her leadership is uh, being characterized by more by continuity with, uh, with right-wing ideology, uh, regardless of the communication style. And I think the gender helps on the communication style in a way that, for example, even Sergei Guriev for, uh, for uh, former USSR countries, uh, I think he mentioned in the, in the book with Trisman, uh, that would not work in, uh, in, in, in those countries. It seems to work in Italy. It's a new thing that, that it has been used at that level. And in a sense, it, it's, 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 uh, it's serving the purpose of, of making people think, in line with your question be, be, before, that populism is here to stay, at least as a communication strategy is here to stay. Clearly, the social media, the, the, te the, new, the new technologies are making the, the, the populist discourse a bit easier than before. I'm not surprised, as I said, that you started out this interview with Biden the other day, because it's true. The communication strategy has been, uh, in a sense, adjusted to almost fight the, the, the uh, Trump on its own turf, which I don't think it's a particularly good idea. Precisely right. You because... kind of predicted this. You had an interesting piece about um, uh, the, the fact that the midterm elections had handed Biden a divided Congress suggests that it's not good for good government. I think for you, good government and populism aren't compatible. Populist ideology results in bad government. Yes, on, on uh, average, uh, what Funky et al. Uh, have shown also in a macro uh, paper uh, is that on average, uh, a populist government uh, uh, 10 years down the road or 15 years down the road after, after losing office uh, leads to a growth rate that is between 20, well, not a growth rate, but all macroeconomics indicator around 20% worse than, than in cases where the populists were not there. So there are mostly the blaming at the macro level is nationalism itself usually is not particularly good. I, I'm, I'm talking about yeah, whether this can be over-quantified. Quantifying populism seems a contradiction no. in terms since it's about sentiment. If you rather... make a commitment to protectionism and, uh, and, and, you know, on average, free trade has been uh, uh, an important uh, variable both for growth and, and to avoid conflict. Uh, clearly, clearly, this brings uh, uh, the, uh, even an, intu an intuitive uh, uh, consequence. Then, of course, the quantification people do it. People do them in different ways, and you may, for example, like uh, more in terms of your criticism uh, uh, the paper that I have forthcoming on the American Journal of Political Science, where we are quite rigorous about quantifying the consequences of populism. Yeah, and this is going to get played out, I think, now in the United Kingdom as a consequence of Brexit, as people seem to be changing their mind about Brexit having seen the real economic consequences in contrast to the populist message of the Brexiteers. Finally, Massimo, we did a show yesterday with an interesting uh, former UN uh, uh, bureaucrat, politician, Roland Rich. He ran their democracy fund. 
he has a new book out, The United Nations as Leviathan, Global Governance in the Post-American World. He suggests we need new institutions. I don't think he'd be a big fan of populism either. Um, populism for you is about, and for many others, is about mistrust, distrust of current institutions. A lot of them aren't working. Italy, they've never really worked. It doesn't seem very well. Do you think the longer term, more sort of meta fix for populism is rethinking institutions in the 21st century, coming up with institutions with more credibility, more legitimacy that people actually trust, whether it's a new version of the UN or whether it's more local kind of institutions? Yes, but I think that we can uh, design modifications of the current institutions that go in the right direction rather than creating a new, a completely new order. So what I'm thinking is uh, Europe, for example, exists. It's not that, I'm, that we need another Euro uh, European Union, but we have been arguing, uh, many of us uh, uh, already, since the beginning of the century, or even 1999 at the time of the beginning of the Euro, that uh, uh, we needed also a political union and fiscal union in order to have a sort of United States of Europe. And my dream would be uh, this political union where, in fact, not only there are, uh, uh, as, the, as there are already, uh, um, election, European elections, but such European elections are conducive to uh, an actual European government that has responsibility on defense, on, uh, on fiscal uh, policy, etc., and where, therefore, the voters of each nation don't elect uh, the, the representatives at the, at the European Union Parliament uh, using the same logic as when they uh, 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 hire their representative agent at the domestic level, but in terms of what policies are, in fact, proposed by the various parties or European parties for Europe as a whole. So generating more representative democracy at the European Centre would generate more trust in, and, and more reliance uh, on the European Union, and at the same time, would weaken uh, and would eliminate the nationalistic trap where many uh, uh, individual nations within Europe uh, are stuck. So therefore, this is an important uh, change that has been advocated by many, but unfortunately, as Jean Monnet put it, Europe uh, has been forced by crisis. And so it seems that the next step of European integration will have to come uh, uh, from uh, uh, more crises that, that generate this change as a need rather than a good idea. And the other institution that one could talk about um, as uh, something that should be perhaps in the future modified rather than uh, completely changed anew would be NATO, right? Because I am not a firm believer that that uh, North Atlantic uh, uh, whatever, organization, NATO, should be remain as it is forever, because clearly I don't buy at all the, the, the rhetoric of, of Putin, uh, but clearly, clearly it could be in the advantage of more free trade and, and a return to globalization 
instead of the creation of two walls that will fight each other for 50 years, to at least uh, uh, at some in, in due course, and not clearly during a, a war of aggression, but in due course, uh, uh, revisit also the role of NATO and the potential uh, uh, and the potential role for uh, for global peace. Uh, 